meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my You know, there's good days and bad days and good days I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice, um, I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is In Love with the World. The crushing issues of our times, violence and bias, climate change, and variants of the COVID-19 virus can either drown us in anxiety, rage, or helplessness, or become the path of liberation itself. Meditation practice is a means of releasing us from illusion and fixation in order to succor our natural resources of compassion and insight regardless. Today we are joined by Laura Sims. Laura is an award-winning performer, writer, and educator advocating storytelling as compassionate action for personal and community transformation. She performs worldwide combining ancient myth and true life story for adult and family audiences. She is the artistic director of the Hans Christian Andersen Storytelling Center in New York and the founder of the Center for Engaged Storytelling. As a spokesperson for storytelling, she presents keynotes and workshops in conferences, villages, schools, universities, and community events. She is a member of the Therapeutic Arts Alliance of Manhattan and a senior teacher of Shambhala Buddhist Meditation. Here's Laura to take away the discussion. I chose the title because in some ways I thought everything in our world we could say is shifting, that there's so much uncertainty and there's so much justification for saying everything is wrong outwardly that I thought what could be the antidote or what could be the opposite of this almost extravagant experience we're having of everything that we thought we might depend on being up for grabs and so much loss and so much awareness of conflict. So I chose the name in love with the world. And um, so it's impossible to have a Dharma talk where we're not looking at the very time we're living in at the moment. And what is our role as practitioners at this time? So usually what brings us to be interested in mindfulness, in Buddhism, in mindfulness awareness, in meditation practice has to do with our our, our personal um, sense of suffering or dissatisfaction or feeling blocked or needing to change something or actually um, maybe even sick and tired of our repeated patterns of behavior. So we seek out something or some means of relief. And actually, we do get a certain amount of relief from meditation practice. And I know that Sometimes when I have absolutely lost all of my sense of um, calm and solace after watching the news or taking a walk here in Manhattan, 
that sometimes I do sit down to practice because it is a place where I can restore some sense of calm or some sense of um, refreshment in the midst of what is taking place. So our usual approach is to get rid of that discomfort. And there are so many ways we distract ourselves and one of them is with exacerbating our unhappiness or our discomfort. With trying to figure it out or track it back to what is the cause or understand it, which is not a completely futile activity, but very often what it ends up doing is sort of further engages us in the tyranny of our mind. Has that been your experience? Even uh, someone long time practicing. So once we begin to practice, once we begin to actually, you know, there's receiving meditation instruction, there's coming occasionally to practice, and then there's a moment where we might commit ourselves to actually practicing shamatha meditation practice. The sort of fundamental practice that is ongoing, even if we have been um, engaged in advanced studies and advanced practices, we're always returning to this fundamental practice of sitting with whatever is occurring in the moment. And when we're aware that we are thinking, we best we can let it go and just focus again on our breath. So it's just the very fundamental practice. But once we begin to do that, we do find something rising up in us that even if it's only while we're on the cushion that gives us even for a short period of time, some sense of relief, some sense of relaxation that we might not have experienced our entire day or for weeks on end, actually. And with the increased practice, where we're over and over and over again, becoming more subtly aware of the difference between when we're thinking and what it feels like to sort of just say thinking and let it go, no matter how extraordinary the thought or how powerful the emotion is, that we begin to have some sense of a quality within our own mind of like an ocean of silence beneath the thoughts. And the more we become familiar with that, the more that the practice becomes something that we seek out because it is so different and it is there for the taking in a sense. So something shifts in the fabric of how we're living because we have uncovered within ourselves, like um, 
Like, have you ever had a dream where they're where you're walking through your house and then you discover that in your own house there's a room you never saw before, and you go in that room. It's like, oh, I didn't know that this big room was in my house. It has that quality. So the speed and the intensity of keeping up with the chatter of our lives and the attempt to keep in touch with everything that's going on, to figure out our lives, to understand things, to tie one event to the other, one thing after another, to do, do, and do, and do, that is interrupted. And because it's interrupted, suddenly there's a pause and in that pause we actually breathe and when we breathe and we pause we actually in a sense move back from the tumult and what begins to occur is we are keenly feeling the speed of our lives but we're also witnessing that speed. And so between them, there is a kind of spaciousness. It would be as if we were swimming. Have you ever dreamed, I had this dream the other night where I was swimming deep out to the, in the sea, but I was also on the shore watching myself swim. So the reason why I'm, talking about this particular experience which rises up through our sitting practice is because it is what allows us to actually feel ourselves in the moment and that you might say well i'm sitting so that i'm not so self-preoccupied so why should i be so involved with what i'm feeling what i'm seeing the thoughts that come up, the thoughts that, it's because that place inside from which we suddenly have a sense of what we're feeling is the window that opens up or the door to the room in the dream in which suddenly it's as if all the time we have forgotten, like we've been engaged in a great forgetting, that in our own mind, there is a restorative pool of presence. It's spacious. And even in the midst of crises, that space can open up and we can actually be in the crisis, not trying to figure out what we should do or reacting, we could actually be in it. And in Shambhala terms, that being, going on being, is actually a tenderness. It is actually the insight of the heart. And it's the heart-mind that allows us 
to be with whatever is happening and see it. And because we have been sitting and we've been practicing, noticing when our thoughts arise, the gluey attachment we might have to the desire to distract ourselves or get caught up in our next thought actually gets like a thinner and thinner veil. And um, in so in Buddhist terms, we are beginning to let go of our very pernicious, all pervasive habit of grasping and fixation. So there's a quality of sort of melting that impulse. And the tender heart is actually what allows us from a kind of authentic presence to relate to our feelings, not our thought about our feelings, or not what we think we should feel or what we learned we should feel, sort of a shocking, raw quality of tender heart. And it has the quality of intelligence and intuition. Why it is so important to me more and more during this period of time is because accessing that, remembering it, almost sort of rebooting myself, interrupting myself to stop, to breathe, allows me in the midst of the propulsion of this period of time to actually feel joy regardless of all that's going on. And that joy is not like happy, happy. It's a kind of um, all pervasive sense of presence. It's a natural joy. It's actually our nature. So it's not that we're joyful about something or that because we are so happy, we can change what's going on. It is a kind of outrageous being present in the midst of whatever is happening. And it has the quality of intimacy, of compassion, of empathy, the intelligence of empathy, in which you realize that everyone around us is embroiled in this quality of speed. And we can feel compassion for that. I mean, sometimes I feel really annoyed by it. And then I remember how fortunate I am that I have the ability, the practice to interrupt myself and to be there. Our habits are persistent. 
And when you start meditating, nobody tells you that as you practice, you become in some ways more befuddled than you were before. Because you're actually, we're actually experiencing what we were kind of numb to, which was the constant barrage of our mind that sits between us and sort of experience and space. So this awakening, this awareness, this sense of presence, this kind of knowing and recognizing that the vastness of mind is actually inside of us and available allows us to find our sanity again. When we find our sanity, and the more we find our sanity, the more we can be helpful to others, because insight and intuition gives birth to skillful means, and also patience, because there is enough space for us and a place for us to rest. So this is all very um, abstract in a way. So I, I'm going to tell you um, a story from my childhood. And maybe it is this story that somehow connected me or drew me to meditation. And why I'm telling a story from my childhood from before I meditated is because it's obvious if this is the natural state of mind, this is not something that is special to Buddhists or Shambhalians. This is accessible to everyone. So when I was 12 years old, my parents sent me to summer camp, to Camp Kent. It was in Connecticut. And it was a year after my mother, who was a concert pianist, had a stroke. And the incident that I'm going to tell you happened a week after I accidentally overheard the director of the summer camp telling my counselor that she should keep an eye on me because my brother was a troublemaker and he thought my mother was crazy. And this so distressed me that I took to not engaging after lunch in any of the camp activities, but in swimming laps in the lake as if through the urgency of swimming, I could escape the terror I had that I was being pointed out and that I might be crazy as well. So I swam and there was a wooden deck. And on the wooden deck, there was a boy who was fishing every day. It was August, it was hot, he wore a leather jacket, and he was the boy who was thought to be a bad boy. He was trouble. Now, I don't remember 
what he did, whether he smoked, cursed, what he did, but he was the one considered bad, and I was trouble. So trouble was swimming, and bad was fishing. And one day I walked out of the lake, and I climbed up on the wooden deck, and I noticed that the bad boy was staring at something on the hook of the fishing pole, and he looked completely distraught. And I walked over, and he had accidentally caught a frog, and it was dangling from one leg. And the bad boy said, I'm afraid to hurt the frog. I'm afraid to take out the hook. So I put my hand under the frog. And the boy put his hand gently over the frog. And then I very slowly took the hook out from the leg and the frog pressed its body down on the palm of my hand. Then the boy put his hand under mine and we put the frog on the grass and watched it hesitant and then recovered hop away. Every day for the rest of the summer, I sat with the boy on the deck and I have no memory of his name. I actually have no memory of a conversation. It was a kind of communion. It was a kind of um, meeting in which we recognized without knowing it, the goodness in ourselves that had gone unrecognized by others. He was my friend. And I realized in retrospect that that experience, that being with so openly was the way I was saved that summer because surely with everything that was going on, I imagine I might have swam out one afternoon with stones in my pocket and not come back. So when we access this place in ourselves, which is what the practice of meditation makes possible, we are then in relationship to our heart and in a sort of less obstructed relationship to everything around us. Because it's not a thought about it, in many ways this tenderness, this openness is protecting us 
because there's a tremendous intelligence in being in the world as it is, as opposed to trying to figure out what's going on or navigate things or control things or something about that quality of completely being there. You know, I work a lot as a storyteller. I've worked in a lot of um, post-disaster and post-conflict um, situations. And many times I realize that there is nothing that I can do to change anyone's situation. But what I can do, which is a kind of internal adjustment, is access a sense of being present. So not only do I bear witness, but I can communicate with other. And that quality of communication, that quality of being with another, just as it was with the bad boy and the frog, <laughs> allows us to feel, to know actually, what in Shambhala we, we're calling basic goodness, the unconditional vastness of mind that is shared and all pervasive. And it's that which, if I stop when I'm really caught up in something and I just look, I see the sky. I'm aware of, like yesterday, a man walking by me in 70 degree weather in a green velvet suit with his hair pomaded back, like someone just popping out of a, a, a story or a film. And in that moment of being present and seeing him, he actually looked up and we met for an instant. And that joyful smile just completely refreshed me. And he then continued walking. And at one point, he just turned around and looked back. And I equate that with being in love with the world, regardless of circumstance. It is, and we have no idea. And I can remember Trungpa Rinpoche in our um, seminaries, which used to be three months long. I think, Jude, did you and I go to the same seminary in 1979? That he would often tell us to cheer up no matter what. But you can't cheer up as an idea. It's a natural eruption from space itself that lets us suddenly be our radiant selves in any situation. So it is the joy of aliveness. And it could be that that reconnection, that access, is actually the ceaseless resource of energy that changes 
the world because we're so far gone that what is it that we can do as human beings? So maybe the man in the green velvet suit is one person and maybe the 500 people in an auditorium or your classroom or the cafe you're in, suddenly something happens and there's a momentary um, interruption of despair. I can remember sitting once in a tent in um, Haiti and talk about desperation, it was after the earthquake and I heard an outrageous laughter, which was so unusual. I looked out and there was a woman who was sitting and she was washing clothing, singing, and a group of people had surrounded her. She was so caught in the singing while she was washing in the middle of the rubble. And that all of a sudden, everybody started applauding when she finished singing and they all burst out laughing. And for a moment in that desperate place, it was so alive, so um, raw in its being. From this place also comes a natural curiosity. So today, um, there is across the street from me, um, a ginkgo tree. And it was growing in front of what was a kind of beautiful building that had been an old hotel. And it was just fantastic. But the old building was torn down. And then the ginkgo tree was um, cut off at the top and then major branch on the side just chopped. So on that top part, no leaves grew. On the arm that was cut, like an amputation, no leaves grew. But still around the center, from the middle of the sort of old thick trunk up to near the top where it was cut, there were leaves. And the construction people put a yellow plastic fence around it that people walking by took for a garbage pail. So they would throw trash in and then the trash was piling up. So I would go and um, could get a piece of concrete stand on it and go in and pull trash out. So Occasionally, Sam, who was the, used to before his um, bodega closed, would bring out um, a bucket of water and pour it in. And some of the workmen who were there on the construction site came over to talk to me about how they, their fathers had orchards in Dominican Republic or Haiti or Jamaica. And we would sit and talk about trees and they would explain to me how to water, how not to water the ginkgo. But recently, there is a huge wall now and I can't barely see the tree. And there's just one small area where the leaves are growing. And there's a little diamond window 
you know, a sort of plastic window, so really she could look into the construction site, but it's right in front of the trunk of the ginkgo. So I felt so bad for the ginkgo, and I thought, you know, there's nothing that I can do anymore. So I tried to talk to the ginkgo, which is a very good thing to do. And then during my sitting practice, I had an idea. And I completely cheered up from this idea. I decided that I would post around the window and on the street with the arrows and instructions of how to find the ginkgo, a sign that says the tree growing here is a ginkgo tree. It is one of the oldest species of tree on the planet. It is resilient. After Hiroshima, the dropping of the atom bomb in Japan, it was the only tree that bloomed again. It is my hope that this ginkgo tree will grow again after the construction site is complete. But please stop and look at the tree. Say something to the tree. Send your prayers and wishes to the tree. Remember to honor what is resilient in your life. Take a pause. Remember what will prevail during and after COVID has passed. Hopefully racism ended, greed banished, climate change and violence addressed. So together as part of the world, we and the ginkgo can grow new leaves. May everyone find joy and peace of heart and please cheer up your neighbor. <laughs> so that's my talk. <laughs> so let's have a conversation. Because there's one thing about, you know, we always have this idea, I have to, I'll fall in love with something, or I want this and I'm in love with it. But then there is just being love. And in another, that's another way of saying experiencing basic goodness, no matter what is going on, because we have no idea how, when we do that, it may actually transmute something in the world. <laughs> this is so great. It's resonating with so many things that have happened or are happening and uh, and just to just to really hold them I think that's the that's the thing is they may seem small that moment of you know when the clerk in the grocery store when you meet that person's eyes and you know suddenly something the whole thing changes instead of just a material exchange it's like a human exchange and the whole atmosphere changes just kind of not 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 thinking that's a small thing i think that's what i'm hearing and um what's so important to remember when the big thing feels so heavy you know it's like the 
the little things are all underneath it. That's all. Yeah. Thank you for all those reminders. Oh, thank yeah. you. I, I also think that when the mind is relaxed, that we are actually communicating from basic goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's it's almost like um basic goodness recognizes basic goodness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's in it's that's the moment when you go, oh, it's there in everyone. It's not just me and my practice, but I can connect with it. Like when I <laughs> I, I have the postman who I, you know, he's the same postman and one day I just asked him his name. And now the postman has a name, Joe. The postman <laughs> is Joe. And it's like the whole thing is different, you know, because of that moment of, yeah, recognition of someone else's humanity and our own humanity, our own humanity. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole issue of climate change and violence. Mm -hmm the root causes all the way to the root is this sense of dissociation mm -hmm. a lack of trust in this quality mm -hmm. of mind that's there mm -hmm. inherent innate lack of relatedness to everything else in the world you know if we're related to mm. the impact act of climate then you know it's impossible to avoid dealing with it but it's like we we chop off being related to other things in the world yeah i mean it's it's very dangerous and we've actually been taught that that's what you learn in school and it's a way and so it's our whole way so this is it, it, it's, I mean, what you're describing, Jude and Lori, is actually, you know, what people, what many Buddhist teachers and Shambhala teachers call radical joy. Mm. But it, it's not something that is just you, you sort of like churn it up and then you put it on. Mm -hmm. You might practice that way from time to time, but it's something that is so spontaneous mm -hmm. that it, it, it is a little like minor eruption or interruption. And it does change everything. Mm -hmm. You want to say something, River? Yeah, I think uh, I'm really appreciating this talk and just the, in general, the concept that of how you describe cheering up and that it's an energetic thing. It's not just something that you can just, oh, just cheer up. And all of a sudden you're fine. <laughs> like something energetically sparks and ignites and causes that. And I think, um, Jude, your story reminded me of, a, of something that happened with me recently as well, where I live in a really big apartment building um, and I actually grew up here. So people might know me from when I was like a really small kid and have seen me now as an adult. And, you know, anytime you live in a large building, you have some people that are friendly, some people that are not. And there's this one woman who has a really cute dog and, I remember ever since I was a kid, like walking by her and just thinking like, 
she doesn't want to say hi. And I don't know why I want to say hi, but I'm not because she's older. So I was like deferring to her to start some communication. And so for years, we would just pass each other with kind of like a, you know, autopilot face walking through New York City. And for some reason recently, I decided to smile and say hi. I guess I had a curiosity or something in me was just like, okay, just today, River, you're just going to try this. Worst case scenario, you know, she she doesn't look at you and walks away and like, you'll be a little upset, but you, you will be all right. Um, so I smiled and I said, hi. And she smiled so big and said hi back. And we ended up talking, exchanging names. She introduced me to her dog. And now every time I see her, we have like a whole really warm interaction. And it just, it's just reminding me of those moments and those opportunities when you're not sure why you feel compelled or called to do something, but that it can be so worth it to just do that. And I had been telling myself this story, this person doesn't like me, you know, maybe she thinks we're so different. It's not worth talking to me. All these stories of the mind. And then I guess maybe getting deeper in my practice and COVID and all of these things that have happened, me willing to take more risks and then recognizing like we both are meeting in this place where we actually really want to say hi and are both really loving and friendly neighbors. But it just took something to kind of break that, uh, break that story. Mm, beautiful. You know, I, I just think Chung Rinpoche, you know, talks a lot about the difference between intellect and intuition. And, you know, intellect is very useful. But if we forsake and don't practice our intuition, mm -hmm. then there's absolutely no use for all. It's like waste product, all the information. <laughs> It's not useful because it's not related to anything. It's just like a kind of, um, it's like the wall in front of the ginkgo tree. And I love that they have this diamond window in it, <laughs> you know, which you can actually see the, this old, funky, um, actually bruised trunk of the tree that is still somehow producing leaves. Mm. Hmm. You know, um, I secretly feed pigeons. <laughs> <laughs> it began quite by accident, but I had to change where I was feeding them because the people who live in a building close by tried to get me evicted. And <sighs> my surprise, it wasn't because of pigeon poop, but they thought the pigeons made too much noise. <laughs> <laughs> the very thing that I could have loved so now the building behind me is um, abandoned because then it's sold and it's abandoned. So it's become a sort of aviary, like a, <laughs> what do you call those pigeon, pigeonatoriums where they have ledges and little things sticking out and the birds can nestle in places. And so I've been feeding them now, it's going on years and I don't know. And some of them I'm very familiar, I am familiar with many of them. And I like to look at their personalities, whether they have various, just all my projection, whether they have a serious face or a gentle face or a curious face. And this one pigeon, and she seems slightly misshapen. I actually, today, I think it, it, I discovered it's a he because he was 
puffed up and doing this sort of like mating dance after a young bird that wasn't interested in him. So um, just the same things are going on in that world that are going on now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, look, has, his eyes are like raccoon eyes, but they're almost in the shape of um, hearts. This sort of black around it. The basis of his body's white, but he has this kind of like black inner wings that are incredibly beautiful. And he's a sort of hybrid, like there's a lot of pigeon lovemaking that's gone over generations because then there's this sort of dun colored area. And then the kind of maroon, um, you know, kind of, um, what do you call it? Translucent neck color, it's a little necklace. So I was talking to the bird and I said, you know, I really like you. <laughs> I don't know why, but I really like you. And um, you're always alone, except for his little romantic endeavor today. And so, you know, if you came over here after all the birds, I would give you some extra seeds. So I put out extra seeds and I thought, oh, I haven't really practiced enough that I can reach the consciousness of religion. <laughs> but then in the morning, I went to the window and there he was. He was just mm -hmm. on the windowsill. <laughs> so instead of practicing in my bedroom where I have a little setup, I just pulled up a chair very quietly and did my shamatha by the window. So I thought, maybe that's the way everything really communicates from that mm. place in the world. And so through most of the sitting practice, the hybrid gentleman, the misshapen hybrid gentleman, <laughs> the black um, heart-shaped eyes, just sat mm. on the ledge. So really I have no idea, but what we know about earlier Neolithic and Paleolithic cultures is that the norm of life was sharing mm. and that there wasn't hierarchy. There might be those who their role was to be the double queen or the you know queen and king or whatever priestess and priest or priestess and priest but there were those were roles they were not um what we know from from these places is that and from tribal peoples is that the norm is actually being in relationship mm -hmm. and that people communicate by long periods of sitting together in silence. So I've begun to think of my meditation practice, my shamatha vipassana practice, as a practice for these times. <clears throat> because it strengthens my familiarity with this quality of mind. And it's fragile and my habits are so um, ingrained it's amazing how quickly I can forget, even mm -hmm. after 30 something years. I can... So the practice is still there for us.
sometimes, and not lately, but I used to be called into public schools when, you know, there'd be a problem of bullying to tell stories. And what they're asking me is tell stories that are like, um, have a pointed message about bullying. And I would never do that. I would tell stories in which there were characters that were bullies, and then there were characters that were affected by bullies. So because everybody who's listening becomes everything in this story. So once in this room, we're actually, the room was, it was like, um, here were the kids who were bullied, here were the bullies. They were different sizes <laughs> and they were in their zones. So I just sat down sort of in the front in the middle and told a story. And then I asked people what they thought. And one of the really infamous bullies said, that boy was so mean. I said, how do you think the other kid felt? He said, he must have felt really lousy. And I said, well, what do you think made him a bully? He said, somebody must have been mean to him. <laughs> there it was. And when I came back the next day, they were actually sort of not so much in their zones. They had crossed over. <laughs> because they had also heard each other's stories. Mm. Heard each other's stories. So this... So we are practicing some, we are practicing the ordinary. And my favorite statement of Trungpa Rinpoche years ago was that the ordinary is the magic. Mm. Mm. I've, I've been also working lately with, um, <clears throat> with Suzuki Roshi and where he talks about how we, we live our lives in a movie, like we're in a movie. And we forget that um, it's actually a movie. And we forget that what we're experiencing is our projections on the screen. And it's all very colorful and very full of energy and full of anger and full of love and full of drama of all kinds. But we kind of forget that it's just our projections. And he said, what you want is to recognize that. And then what you want is a blank screen so that you can actually see what's happening, which I just, so it's been, it was funny because in circ certain circumstances, I would go, oh, I want a blank screen here. I don't want all my projections, you know, all my, you know, like, I can't even remember. It was more, it, it would come up in practice because I would find myself in practice generating, you know, like a conversation with somebody I had to, was very colorful and very dramatic. And I was really engaged, you know, and energetically and feeling it in my body. And then just remembering, oh, that's the movie, you know, like, what you what you described in the very beginning of the space putting some space between your storylines as we say to a storyteller i don't that's a different kind of thing but I think it's a very different kind of story yeah yeah 
it's, it's a story that we believe right where the content is important but when you're telling a story you're not it's the vehicle through which there's this right. experience it's not the content it's not about the moral or the content right yeah yeah that's beautiful yeah the blank screen which then would become like a scrim so you could actually see through it to what was really happening. That was how I, <laughs> the blank screen is like this, but you know, at some point the screen also dissolves and you just see things as they are. That was my. Um, yeah, and you can actually see the drama. You can mm -hmm. actually can enjoy the drama <laughs> because you're not sort of in the, you're not in, you're not glued inside of the drama. Right. So it has, as you sing, this transparency to it. And therefore, you can really listen to others. You can be compassionate to others who are telling you their story, and you right. don't have to suddenly zoom in mm -hmm. and become glued in. Mm -hmm. But that, and that is a kind of amazing way of listening also, because then it's there's a certain hollow quality to there there can be an interruption of their thickness of it because mm -hmm. you're not gluing your thickness into it yeah that just happened to me today <laughs> i got totally glued and it would have been so much more helpful if i had been unglued so it's amazing isn't it yeah, because yeah. it's so um, that's why it's constantly path. Mm -hmm. Yeah, just constantly discovering and then letting go of the realization that we've been in it. Mm -hmm. So there's no shame, no blame, no self devaluation, like, oh, no, I did that again. And I'm terrible. Mm -hmm. It's like, that is the same thing Then you get re glued in mm -hmm. into another version of the story mm -hmm. and it, it's amazing how we believe it yeah. so yeah. pulling out the threads mm -hmm. if we don't if we don't interrupt it if there's no refreshment then how can we um, go forward and do anything so if we want to um, be active in the world this capacity to reboot to refresh to see things is what then gives us you know what in buddhist terms is you know not only um skillful means but wisdom which is wisdom is when you see things as they are it's not the accumulation of information like oh they're so wise they know everything an odd kind of way it's knowing everything and on the spot knowing absolutely nothing mm. just oh so um thank you and i hope everyone stays healthy and keeps practicing so we can um share the magic actually in the world